Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Chris with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Andre Boyson with securekey.com. How are you doing, Andre? Uh, very good today, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for being here. Andre, share with us your background. Uh, sure. So um, I guess uh, by way of uh, qualifications, I guess I've been uh, an engineer for most of my career, uh, a computer engineer. I've also got a business degree, and uh, I also have a teaching degree in mathematics. And over my career, I guess I've been a, a co-founder or an angel at five companies or fintech startups in that time. I've taught entrepreneurship at university and uh, also been involved with several task forces here in Canada and, and the, work, uh, the payment system task force review for Canada, figured out how we do digital payments better. I've also done work with the World Economic Forum on the blueprint for digital identity. And so essentially, um, I like the thinking of new ways to solve problems and make new businesses out of it. I've probably co-created upwards of 10 patents with uh, friends and uh, over my time in my career here. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so uh, 10 patents, that's, that's quite a bit. So give us um, give us some info on SecureKey and what it does. So SecureKey is on a mission to solve the problem we all have when it comes to accessing the Internet, which is making digital identity easier. The challenge uh, we have today is that uh, it's very tough online. There's there's a lot of risk, and because of the risk, uh, we're, we're rolling out all these new security models. And so the truth is that today it's uh, a challenge for users to get access to services online because uh, the attack surface is so complex, we're rolling out new technologies all the time. And so we're in a model where it's 
hard for users today, but it's easy for crooks. The crooks can get through pretty easily, actually. And so our mission at Secure Key is to kind of invert the model to make digital identity easier for users and hard for crooks. And so the concept is for you, me, and everybody is to be able to easily prove who you are when you want to access a new service and also make it easy for you to get access to that service over time in a way that you can and a crook can't. And most importantly, when you lose access to your devices, that you can easily turn them off so the crook who found your stuff can't do anything with it and easily reconnect yourself. How does this easily prove the user ID? So what's important is uh, rather than trying to construct trust out of nothing, we kind of build on what's already commonplace. When you think about how identity works today in person, it's pretty common when you sign up for a new service, they'll ask you to say, hey, bring government-issued photo ID and something improves where you live. And so what we see from this model is that we already have multiple trusted providers in the consumer's life that stand behind them when they want to prove their identity as a new service. And so our basic premise is, is rather than trying and reinvent how the economy works, let's build on the success of what consumers already understand and what, what is already common business practice, but adopt it so it works better online. And also importantly, so it'll also work better at the call center. So the premise is we want a digital identity service for consumers that will work in person, online, and at the call center. And so that's what we're on a mission to do. And so when it comes to the what kind of trusted providers are we talking about, it's the same ones we know already. So when I show up at a service, they might say something approves where you live. And when we think about what satisfies that today, maybe uh, you might bring a hydro bill. I could bring a bank statement or a phone statement that proves that I live in an address. Government-issued photo ID is pretty common. For the most part, that means uh, a driver's license or government-issued photo ID card or a passport. So it's these types of trusted providers that we want to enable to participate in the digital identity scheme. It's not exclusive of those. We want to add more as well. But it starts with those, and we'll get into more details and get through the call, but that's the basic idea. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm curious about other services that we're looking to provide. I, I know when we're going to establish, you know, some sort of history, uh, like renting a, renting a place or maybe uh, perhaps buying a car or other things of that nature, that we, we have to provide our IDs. What is, what's kind of the format that you're looking to, to provide IDs and to what kind of services? That's a great question. So when you think about your own life, there's all sorts of places where knowing who you are is important. And sometimes important for you to know who you're dealing with, too. And so let's start where you started, which is in the sharing economy. If I uh, get onto Craigslist and I, I see a flat that you've got to rent, uh, we both have a problem as it relates to trust. For me, as a potential renter, I want to make sure you actually own this flat you're trying to rent and you're not trying to trick me out of first the month, last month's rent. So i got to make sure that you just didn't do a, a quick Airbnb thing and trying to trick me out of uh, some money and, and, and leave me in a, in a bad place. You and your place as a landlord, you also want to make sure it's really me. And so the way you do this today is you'll typically hire a real estate agent and you'll offer to pay them one or two months rent as a mechanism to have them go do the due diligence on me to make sure I'm a good credit risk, that I'm not a professional renter who's going to pay the first month's rent and never pay again or, or trash your place. And so we, we see this sharing economy thing playing out in all sorts of use cases. And so when we get to a trusted digital identity scheme where I can be really certain that I, I know who you are as a landlord, when I sign up for your place on Craigslist or Kijiji, and you can get good confidence that I, that I really am Andre Poison and I've got a good background check and I've got a credit history that's uh, satisfactory to you, we can actually start doing some really interesting things. And one of the challenges today in the, the simple flat renting scenario is that um, as, a, as a renter, I typically have to give you 12 post-dated paper checks. And we're in a digital economy where it's a real anachronism where we're, we're still having to pass paper to get rent paid. And when we get to a good, strong digital identity, and, and maybe I've chosen to have my bank as my core provider, they can actually help me prove my identity to you. And, and likewise, I can have somebody that I trust prove your identity to me. 
uh, we can trust uh, in each other now so we can do a trusted transaction together. And the bank can help me now. Instead of me writing paper checks, I can do push payments from my banks. And maybe it starts from my line of credit and eventually I move it to my savings account without having to tell you anything. And so this allows us to change the dynamic of how we can kind of get uh, transactions done online in a trusted way. But it plays out right across the economy, whether it's a new banking account or a new cell phone or signing up for a new HMO or getting access to uh, an insurance product or, and so on. We, we see this need for trusted identity right across the economy. Okay. And what is, what is the means that you use to onboard uh, potential customers? So this uh, model, like, I, like we talked about at the top of, call, top of the call, uh, kind of replicates what we do already in the real economy. So when you sign up for a new service today, they, they set the rules. They say what you have to have to get in. And the pattern typically is government-issued ID and improves where you live. And when we see this, we see there's a plurality of providers. Uh, you could show up with a state ID from, say, California, and I could show up with a provincial driver's license from Ontario. Those are both valid choices. And we, you might show up with a utility bill, and I could show up with a bank statement. So there's a plurality of providers that work on the current model. So we're going to enable those guys to uh, do that in a digital way, which means that I can do an electronic assertion now. And more importantly, it can be digitally signed, so it's more trustworthy. And so both of us will be able to create relationships with the trusted providers that are in our life already, bank, government, telco, and others. And with those trusted relationships, go to these new destinations and satisfy their needs for trusted digital claims from sources you have in your life already to get that new service that you want, to make it easy to access that service over time. And if you lose uh, your device, uh, to easily reconnect to that service without having to start all over again. Okay. And so you mentioned the, the providers. Which providers are you working with? If you can, If you can talk to us more about that. Sure. So um, in Canada, we'll, we're in trials now. Um, seven of the largest banks in Canada are connected to the network. We've got support and participation from all the major telcos in Canada, so all the major cell phone providers. And there's a series of governments and other private sector partners who will all be participating in our service when we launch in the fall this year. And so what that means is roughly 14.5 million Canadians who have mobile banking apps already are pre-equipped to play and participate in the network when it launches later this year. It will require them to download a companion app to their uh, banking app called Verified Me to participate in the service, but this will allow them to quickly create uh, links to the trusted relationships they have already and use those trusted claims then to get access to the new services that they want in their life. That's Verified Me, Verified.me, is that right? That's, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so let's go into a bit more about Verified Me and how that, that's going to work along with the uh, banking apps. Sure. So one of the things that's important here is if we're going to create a trusted digital identity scheme, there's a couple of things that are important. In order for business to use the service, they care about three things. They want to know the data came from an authoritative source. The second thing they want to know is that the data hasn't been altered since it was written by that authoritative source. There's no man in the middle or manipulation going on of the data. And the third most important thing that they care about is that it's being presented by the person it belongs to. So our service is designed to increase business integrity, to give businesses greater confidence about these electronic assertions that are happening at the time of registration, to also decrease uh, the breach risk by providing less data that's more trustworthy, the breach risk that business actually goes down. Uh, it's easier for consumers to show up this way, so they're going to have better adoption. And because there's a lower breach risk with less data, there's also better privacy. And for consumers, the benefit here is that uh, it, it's very easy now for you to prove your trusted identity to, to get access to this new service. And so the, the basic concept is what we don't want to do is create a surveillance network, have a big honeypot of data with all these identity claims from different consumers in the economy, because that will be a breach risk in itself, and it will also maybe 
cause some people not to use the service if they think their data is being monetized. So our service is about the consumer. We're here first and foremost to serve the needs of consumers to make sure that they have confidence that their data is private and the service is easy to use and that it's trustworthy that when they go to a destination service that only the data they intended to share gets shared. So that's the premise for the consumer and for the business we've already talked about. They want better business integrity. So the question becomes, okay, well, how do we do that? That sounds like magic. Well, the way that we do that is to kind of copy the model that we have today. In, in the in-person identity model that we have today, the data is distributed. So we don't have a honeypot. Uh, you bring a driver's license, and when I use my driver's license, there's all the places I like to sign up for the province or the state never gets to see where I did that. So there's a privacy model there already. So that's kind of cool. So we want to keep that property. Um, we also want to keep the property that you can choose your favorite stuff, and I can choose my favorite stuff and be successful. So it's going to do that too. Uh, and what we want to do is kind of overcome the deficiencies in the current model. So what are the deficiencies in the current model? Well, one is, is there is some privacy, but not enough privacy with the current model. When I need to prove where I live, what they really want to know is if I've lived at this address for the past six months. But what they get instead is a bank statement that allows them to see everybody I've transacted with in the last six months. We're giving away too much data. So our service will solve that. We will only share the data that's needed. The second thing we're going to do uh, is because these claims now are digitally signed by the provider of the data, the receiver knows that they're trustworthy. There's uh, The crook hasn't managed to grab it and do a replay attack, and the user hasn't been able to manipulate the data to get access to service they might not otherwise be entitled to. And so it does that too. Um, the third thing that uh, this model is going to do is it's going to solve the, the fractured registration process. The way I re register in person, the way I register online uh, is going to be the same. So the, the user experience is going to be similar. So it's going to be easier for me to understand as a consumer what's going on. And every time I share my data as a consumer, I'm going to get very, very clear context and provide consent to share my data. It's going to be very clear to me that this destination service, whether it's a bank or a telco or an HMO, is the one who's going to receive my data. And I get to see exactly what information they're going to get. And so when I provide my consent to say, yes, that destination can have this data from my bank or my telco, it's going to be for a specified purpose and for a specified duration. And so the, I have confidence as a consumer that my wishes will be honored. And at the end of that period, that destination service will no longer have access to my data. With the sharing of data and the, the access point, um, are, are you using a, like a smart tra uh, smart um, contract concept to enact that, or how are you making that happen? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And so um, uh, blockchain has uh, been an important uh, technology here to help us out. And so before I answer your question, I want to give you a little background before I talk about why blockchain is important. Yeah, uh, sure. We've already got a network that's been running here in Canada since 2012 we call Secure Key Concierge. And it's uh, a federated single sign-on service. It allows Canadians to use their bank account to reach online services in public sector in Canada, like uh, tax and health and benefits information. And so the basic concept is rather than me having a special purpose government Canada account to see my online information, instead of that, I can use my bank account if I choose to, to get there. And so that's what the service does. It's been in service since 2012. And the, the, the results for, for government in Canada has actually been quite remarkable. Um, their costs have come down substantially, but almost by an order of magnitude since they've adopted the service. Their business confidence and Andre's Andre, when he shows up for his service, has gone way up. And the reason is because I use my bank account every day. One, I'm not, I don't forget my bank account password because I use it every, every day. But when I do for, I have a problem getting into my bank, I will notice right away and I'll do the right thing. Unlike a government credential, if I only go once a year and I try to get in today and I can't, my conclusion is I forgot. And I don't tell anybody because I think I forgot. And in the small set of circumstances where there is fraud, the fraud, the crook get the free ride because I think I forgot. So when you compare and contrast a bank credential against a government credential, 
it, it's really stark. And so even if the bank and the government are using the exact same technology, the government's still better off with the bank credential because the user uses it more often, and they will notice the problem more quickly and do the right thing to recover. And so that's why government's integrity or confidence has gone up with the using the service. So their costs have come down, their integrity is up, and the, the confidence uh, for, for Canadians doing services this way has gone up too, so the number of people transacting online has also increased. So when we created that service, one of the things we recognized is there might some people might be concerned about using a bank credential to get to government. And we saw this was a concern, so we actually invented a triple-blind privacy protocol to go with the service, and that turned out to be a critical ingredient in getting consumer adoption. What triple-blind authentication says is when I use my bank account to get to government, the bank does not get to see my online destination. They don't know what service I tried to access. The government in its place knows I came from a, a bank in Canada, but they don't know which bank, and they certainly can't see my bank account. And our company, which operates the network, we don't know who we are. We, or Sorry, we don't know who you are. So we don't have any PII or personal information about you. So triple-blind privacy says not the bank, not the government, not security. You've got a complete picture of the user transaction. So back to uh, Verified Me and blockchain. One of the things we wrestled with when we were trying to launch a new identity service is if you have a broker in the middle, it works okay for an authentication network because there's no PII transiting the network. But as soon as you start doing identity information, the middle would get to see a lot. And we were concerned about this. We didn't want to have that breach risk or, or undermine consumer confidence in what we were doing with their data. And so what we wanted to do is launch a triple-blind identity service. So when I decide to share my data from a source like a bank over to a new destination like a telco or a sharing economy service or government, we wanted to implement triple-blind identity. So when I share it from the bank to the destination, the bank doesn't get to see who I gave it to. The destination service, whether it's a telco or government or whatever, they don't get to see who provided it, but they still know it's trustworthy. In our company, we can't see your data at rest or in motion. So now we know how to do triple-blind identity too. And that's where blockchain came in. It helped us solve the problem of how to implement triple-blind identity in a, a scalable way. And so that's how we're doing it, actually, is we're using blockchain to provide integrity proofs about the data while blinding the endpoints to each other. Okay. Yeah, that's... Uh... That makes a lot of sense. So I want to kind of backtrack a little bit to um, some of the deficiencies you mentioned earlier. Um, the the privacy aspect from institution to institution is super important. And I guess my question is, do you think that it's the it's blockchain technology that's allowing this shift to put the power in the back of uh, back into the hands of the consumers? Um, and if so, how do you think? Um, the institutions are reacting to that. Do you, do you think they're flexible? Do you think they will prevent that? What are your, what are your general thoughts on that? Um, so one of the, you know, going back in time, uh, nobody really foresaw uh, the, the scale and level in which data would be propagated across the internet. And for the longest time, uh, people had controls in place to manage it as best they could, but we've seen the evidence is in that uh, having this data everywhere is creating all sorts of new breach risks and increasing the attractiveness of making breaches because the data has become more valuable. And so in that scenario, what we also see is that, uh, you know, some organizations are better than others than managing the data. And so um, governments have seen this. And so there's been a real increase in the uh, regulation around data management. GDPR in Europe is an example. And so with this change in government regulation, the consequences of not getting it right for business are quite extreme. It's going to focus the attention of the entire executive team and every company that manages consumer data on the problem of protecting it properly. GDPR says that 4% of global revenue is due in the case of a data breach uh, infraction. And so uh, just a, for instance, um, 
the there was a, uh, one of the large hotel chains had a data breach uh, back in uh, you know early 2010-2012 time frame, and it went to court, and there was a result from the court, and they they had to pay penalties and fines for the breach, and it came to the order of 75 million. And had GDPR been in effect at the time that breach had happened, that $75 million fine would have been $450 million fine. So getting this right is really, really important. So back to blockchain. Blockchain itself is not going to solve the problem. You can make a mess with blockchain just like you can make a mess with HTML. The important part is creating the right kind of architecture around the use of blockchain. So in our service, blockchain is an important ingredient in how we're going to do this, but it's not the recipe. Um, what it does allow us to do, it provided us a very a specific mechanism to implement this triple-blind model that I talked about. But here's the interesting thing. Blockchain, one of its core principles is that it's immutable, which is to say, once you've written to the blockchain, it's there forever. But when you look at what GDPR says, that as a consumer, I have my right to assert to any organization that holds my data, my right to be forgotten. And they have a duty to not only erase all of the data they have ever had on me, but demonstrate to me that they've done so. And so how do you reconcile my right to be forgotten against a, an immutable blockchain? And the truth is you can't. So we can't use blockchains to record personal information because when I assert my right to be forgotten, you have to blow up the blockchain. So blockchain will be an important technology here. It does provide some very, very good multi-organization trust capabilities. That's what it's good for, but it has to be used properly. Okay, so that triple blind um, authentication factor is that's the step beyond what we were talking about with um, um, blockchain and keeping the data there forever. That's right. So we yeah. provide integrity proofs to give endpoints confidence in the data without creating a surveillance node. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that's super important. I know a lot of a lot of people are really concerned with their identities, especially with the you know the breach you mentioned and plenty of other breaches that were catching headlines in the news. So. What do you think kind of the near-term future of your industry will look like? What, what developments do you think are realistic versus ones that are so ambitious that they're unlikely to happen? So because, uh, you know, the way the internet is constructed is we created a, a seven-layer model to make sure that any IP address on the planet could talk to any other IP address on the planet. And so we've got that infrastructure. It's very reliable. What was missing in that original design is we still have no identity layers. We have no ideas on the keyboard at that IP address. And so that's the thing that's missing. And because we didn't have that layer, the, the way the Internet unfolded is every single organization on the Internet uh, issues and manages its own identity infrastructure. And so that model has led to the problem that we have today where there's a pro proliferation of user IDs and passwords. And so in that model, the challenge we have is uh, every time we have a breach, we have to push out more security to all of our users to, in order to try and protect our data a little bit better. And so what we're essentially doing is every time we have a data breach, there's a fire drill. We, we send out all these notices, change your passwords, change your passwords, and then we roll out another layer of security. So what we're essentially doing is adding another three feet of security fencing to the fencing we have already. And the next week, we expect all our users are going to climb three feet higher. And the problem with this kind of model is we're expecting users to be sophisticated and understand how the Internet works. And that's just not a good assumption, nor is it reasonable. And so I'll just give you a for instance here. None of the banks in Canada use SMS as a security mechanism for their mobile apps. And the reason they don't is they don't believe it's secure. And so the challenge, though, is there's lots of other services that do. Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, they all use SMS, and lots of other services, too, do use SMS. The challenge is consumers don't distinguish between these services and their banking services. And so when you get an alert on your phone that says, suspicious activity on your account, please click on this URL and it says www.wellsfargo.crookurl.com 
you're expecting a user to understand how a URL works. And this is not about Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo has very good security practices. The problem is the user doesn't understand what's going on. When they click on the URL, they get fished for their details. Now Wells Fargo, despite having very good security hygiene, gets an attack. That's the problem with pushing security out to users. And so what we want to do is hide security away from users completely. They shouldn't have to understand anything in order to access the Internet. That's the change that's happening on the Internet. But that can only happen when we move away from the model of every service acting for itself and make identity, uh, like payments, a, a service layer on the Internet that everybody can subscribe to. You'll have trusted issuers on one side, and then any, everybody else consumes the service. And that's, in fact, what our company is doing here in Canada. And there's lots of other examples around the world where we're getting to distributed, federated identity so consumers can enroll for a trustworthy identity service with their favorite provider and then be successful wherever they want to go on the Internet. That's what's coming. Okay, great. So earlier you mentioned that Verified.me is rolling out in the fall. Uh, what else is on the horizon for um, secure keys? So what we see uh, when you look at uh, identity as a topic around the world, there's been lots of good identity experiments, some, some dismal ex identity experiments in, in different parts around the globe. But what I see when I look across all of these experiments is that everybody's doing this at a, at a national level. All of these schemes are country locked. And the problem with that is that one is we're going to have a mishmash of approaches as every country does its own thing. And two, the, the user mechanism, the way users interact with these services and the technologies and the standards will all be different. And the challenge with that is that we're never going to get to global scale. It's never going to be cheap enough and effective enough if everybody does their own thing. And when we see payments, what's the reason payment networks have been so successful is because the, the technology, the standards, and most importantly, the user uh, interaction mechanism, the user experience for all the payment brands across the globe is all the same. And so our thesis is this, that if we, we you know, there's lots of country level experiments going on. And some are successful and, and some aren't. But what's interesting from my point of view, if we get one country to, to stand up a very interesting identity model, and then a second country takes notice and say, hey, that would work for us too, we want to do that as well, then we'd have two countries doing this. And if we could get a third country to do the same thing, my view is there's going to be a catalytic reaction and the whole world will say that. And so that's what we're working towards. We think we have a very good model that has happened in here in Canada with our banking and telco and government partners together as a, a country we figured out how we want to make digital identity work here. And our goal as a country is to see other countries take notice and adopt it for themselves and then make this a global standard so we can make uh, identity work at the same scale with the same success that payments do. Speaking of other countries, uh, do you, in comparing Canada, do you see others that are in a, a similar uh, range right now or that, that are in talks or relating? Um, the short answer is yes, and I'd say watch this space. I'm not at liberty to describe or, or give you more detail about the countries we're talking to, but there's several countries that we're talking to that are uh, in discussion and various forms of agreement to uh, participate in, in different types of projects and trials with the service. And so watch this space is what I can say today. Okay, yeah, yeah, good to watch for. So, Andre, um, before we go, where can... Where can people contact you to find out more about uh, SecureKey and Verify.me? Yeah, so um, one great way to interact with me online is I'm, I'm on Twitter, and so my Twitter handle is IDGorilla, letter I, letter D, Gorilla. Um, you can also get me at uh, my email address at work, which is Andre.Poison at SecureKey.com. Um, we have lots of great content describing these ideas uh, available on our website, which is www.SecureKey.com. And for sure, just uh, following along in this uh, podcast with all the other great content is another place to learn about these topics. Excellent. Final final question for you today. What impact do you think SecureKey and uh, Verified.me are going to have on the near-term future? 
I think the, the, the big opportunity here is to, to, to make uh, doing trusted transactions online easier. And so the opportunity here is to create digital infrastructure that works on a nation scale so consumers can be more successful. The opportunity here is to make it easier for consumers to be more successful online while also making this more cost-effective for business. And I'll just give you a, a really simple example here. I talked about the government of Canada's experience where their costs came down by an order of magnitude when they went to federated authentication. We think this is going to happen in identity too. And just to make it really clear, when you go for a counter visit today to get a new bank account or a cell phone or health service or government service, that counter visit typically takes about 45 minutes to do. So depending what industry you're in, that might be 50 or $75 cost to do that counter visit. With this digital identity service that we're going to launch soon, that business, instead of paying $75 to do it themselves, will be able to use a network service and get it done for 2 or $3. So like the government can, they're going to see their costs come down by an order of magnitude, and their business integrity is going to be higher, and their breach risks will be lower. And so consumers are going to be more successful in getting access to these services online, so they're also going to see their online transactions increase. This is what we need in the economy is take the friction and the fear out of doing online transactions, and that's what we're on a mission to do. Excellent. Andre, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. So Andre Boyson with SecureKey.com, and look for Verified.me in the near future. Thank you for everyone joining us here today on Future Tech Podcast. We will see you next time. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, in their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.